a cat named Joe. He wears a red bandana, plays a blues piano. Just be cool. He wears a red bandana, plays a blues piano. Swinging on a Latin kick I didn't know exactly what to expect Joe threw his sunhand arms around my neck We started dancing all around the floor And then he did a dance I never saw before So ABOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, Board meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The KBOO Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month starting at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. The following program is a special encore rebroadcast for these unique pandemic times. Dates? Times and events mentioned in the following program have already occurred and are no longer relevant. From KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. We begin our show today with the famed Chicana feminist Shiri Moraga discussing her moving book about her mother, Native Country of the Heart, a memoir. Then author and award-winning psychologist Dolly Chug will discuss implicit racism and her latest book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. That's coming up in just a moment. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. The United States today is grappling with becoming a majority minority nation leading to a growing fear among white supremacists of a loss of power. Our varied pasts, instead of being considered part of the nation's rich diversity, turn into targets of hate. 
Today, we turn to the famed feminist Cherie Moraga, who has just written a moving memoir of her mother, Elvira, a Mexican-American woman who moved across the border, and whose story is part of the beautiful and complex fabric of America. Cherie Moraga is, of course, the well-known Chicana feminist, playwright, poet, essayist, activist, co-editor of the 1981 groundbreaking collection of essays, This Bridge Called My Back, writings by radical women of color. She co-founded Kitchen Table Press with Audre Lorde and Barbara Smith. She was artist-in-residence at Stanford University for decades, and she now teaches at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And she joins me to discuss her new book called Native Country of the Heart, a memoir. Welcome to the program, Cherie. Thank you, Sonali. It's really good to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I should say it's a huge honor for me to interview you. Any conversations around feminism and the history of fem feminism in this country, particularly as it relates to women in color, inevitably brings up the book that you edited. Um, and, and it's just you know such an important part of um, our background, our, our feminist culture, if you will. Uh, so this new book is a very personal story. And I'm wondering if you could set the stage by reading from the book a little bit to give our uh, audience a sense of, of why you wrote this book. Certainly. Uh, so I'll just start with uh, from the prologue, which is called uh, Una Salta Patras, which means a throwback. Elvida Isabel Moraga was not the stuff of literature. Few bemoan the memory loss of the unlettered my mother and her generation of Mexican-American women was to disappear quietly, unmarked by the letter of memory, the memory of letter. But when our storytellers go, taking their unrecorded memory with them, we, their descendants, go too, I fear. Maybe it's about turning 60, maybe at such a substantive age, one can finally weave together enough of the threads of one's life to interpret a design from them. For my part, I hold one thickly braided cord as story, my queer self and my writer self, and each would bring me home to my Mexicanism, and my Mexicanism would bring me home to an earlier America, to the Indian memory of bay leaf and madron, desert chaparral, the Pacific always an ocean breeze away. It would also bring home to me a culture of memory and prophecy the harbinger of loss upon the horizon. As a U.S. inheritor of Mexican ancestry, I have walked the reddening road of an occupied America that anoints membership only to those born north of the watery divide of El Rio Grande, a border of river as thirsty as the desert into which it bleeds, leaving my relatives to drown in its grit. Growing up, my elders, well-meaning, told my generation, go that way, hijos, look north to your future. They asked us to betray them, to forget them. Go that way, mija. They didn't know the cost. How to explain the complexity of this? What it means to be not just me, but us. To know yourself as a member of a pueblo on the edge of a kind of extinction at the same time a lesbian lover and mother, where you truly do live your life in constant navigation through whatever part of your identity is being snuffed out that morning in the classroom, at the community meeting, the gasoline station, the takeout counter, Mexican, mixed blood, queer, female, almost Indian, and a poverty masked by circumstance. You have been listening to Sheree Moraga reading from her new book, Native Country of the Heart, a memoir. So um, you so eloquently explained the backdrop there for uh, what has framed, I think, of course, the story about your mother, Elvira. When you say she was an unlettered woman, um, you basically are talking about the fact that she lacked formal education. Exactly, yes. She went to like third grade. She was born in the United States in Santa Paula in 1914. But that was a time in which uh, she, the, the story, much of her, she was uh, a, a field worker. They worked, the family worked in the fields in the, in the uh, 
Imperial Valley in the southern part of the state, right on the border of, of Mexico. It was during the Depression that the family moved. Many people, uh, Mexicanos, Mexican-Americans even, were repatriated into Mexico. And my grandfather then, who was a Mexican citizen, was forced to return to Mexico, and all the family went with him. But they were, the first three children were born in Mexico, and um, or born in Sonora, and Sonora, Arizona. So they're like, we are like generations and generations, actually, of of uh, U.S.-born Mexicans. Hmm. And uh, so even that sort of the part of the story is also to really sort of recollect also that history about our, you know, many of us, our, our uh, indigenous relationship, even to the north, even to northern uh, United States. And it's northern Right. You, America, North America. Yeah. It's a history that is, of course, one that doesn't fit neatly into the narratives that our history books here in the United States um, confer upon, you know, children in school. And so it's a history that, of course, uh, also makes very complex the kind of nativist, as they're called, um, uh, threads of, um, uh, you know, of, of what we are told this country is all about, right? This this story muddies the white supremacist waters. Definitely. I hope so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, yes. so let's talk a little bit more about your mother. Um, so she, uh, she, you say you grow, you grew up in a, a Mexican and Anglo household. Your father was did not have Mexican heritage. No, my father is is Anglo, is white, um, but he had very little relations, and um, his mother died when I was five, and so basically, we were the only. My my mother comes from a huge family of hundreds of relations, and. And so we were the only sort of mixed blood, you know, like having a white father with the only, of my generation and the one before us. And, and from my earliest writings, you know, like from this bridge called My Back, when I write about being La Huera, which means light-skinned, that's the, that was my, my you know, uh, in addition to my queerness, those are those kind of contradictions against the dominant narrative of who we are that I needed to look at. Because culturally, regardless of how I looked, you know, I was raised by a Mexican mother, you know, and, and and in a huge Mexican family. And there was no way to take away that that memory from me and that the values that came from that. And the book is very much about that kind of act of reclamation at a certain level. So uh, what was your mother's relationship with her own parents? Because you do start your uh, book quite early there. Um, how did she, and how did she tell you of that history? Well, my mother, and that's what I was saying, partly the book also deals with the fact that she, you know, in the latter years of her life had Alzheimer's. And so partly the, the big tragedy of that was my mother was a wonderful, wonderful storyteller, an incredible cuentista. When people ask me, you know, what is your, who are your literary, you know, forefathers, foremothers? I always say, oh yeah, you know, it's my tias, my aunts, my uncles, and my mom sitting around, you know, having a cerveza, a beer, you know, and telling stories. And my mother, so all these stories, many of the stories that, particularly of her years in Tijuana, um, when there was depression in the United States, um, in Tijuana, this is before um, Lázaro Cárdenas became president in Mexico and outlawed gambling, et cetera. She moved, the family moved south, and she was at 14 already working because she was bilingual, working at Agua Caliente Racetrack and the Foreign Club with some of the most, you know, kind of all of the mafias were there, all the movie stars were there. So she had a, that story of those years, she's told me since I can remember. And um, How did she I'll, get by? What did she do to make a living there? Well, she was a, a hat check girl and uh, and uh, cigarettes, you know, they in the old days, you know, like they, they sold cigarettes and candy bars and, you know, chewing gum, et cetera. So she was one of those those girls and, you know, carrying those kind of trays around to the, you know, to the clients at the at the casino and um, also with a hat check girl. And as I said, because she was bilingual, because she was born in the United States, she, you know, she lied about her age, 14 years old, put on high heels, and and she became really the mainstay of the family. My um, grandfather, you know, was a very, uh, he was kind of, as I, I referred to him as having a Wild West life. I mean, he was a very charming man and had a lot of connections, but 
you know, he was he had certainly suffered from alcoholism and and my mother, since her older sisters were married quite young, she ended up being really the financial mainstay, mainstay of the family. And so those early years, she, she was there like 10 years um, and even longer into the uh, into the late, yeah, into the late, yeah, so about 10 years. When she returned to Los Angeles and she came back without an education and, um, and it was uh, right before the war years and she found factory work and, you know, has worked um, for the rest of her life. When she met my father, you know, he, he worked, uh, he, he was part of the union in uh, the Santa Fe Railroad. He had that same job his whole life. So, so um, it's in many ways a certain kind of um, quote-unquote American story, um, but there was, uh, and, and partly what the book also looks at is I look at my mother's, um, her kind of private amnesia, and it, it brought up all these kind of questions to me about cultural amnesia in the United States, for especially for people of color, um, and uh, particularly impacting Im immigrants, but also an impacting Native people, you know, uh, North, Northern Native Americans and Chicanos who have, you know, our origins have been here, you know, from, you know, from if not forever, for generations and generations, and so it became very, you know, I think um, also being mixed blood, I was in the position to really recognize that pull of what it is to be able to move through the world and as they say pass you know but your heart doesn't pass and so it, it it was really a place of the birth of real critical consciousness for me when i wrote that one essay in this bridge called my back called la Huera, mm -hmm. and gloria Saldúa, the co-editor wrote la prieta because she was a brown-skinned woman woman and in that really sort of framed sort of the range of what we needed to explore as Chicana feminists, the specificity of, of our own struggle in the way that, as how beautifully um, the um, uh, connection is uh, that the Kumbahi River Collective had created. You uh, share in your book the experience of coming out to your mother. Can you tell us that story and, and what that meant for your relation, for the mother-daughter relationship? Well, in the, you know, I think there's a the very long first section, one of the first sort of uh, books of the piece, um, of the memoir, ends with this story. And um, basically what what occurs is that I am, I'm now in my early 20s, and I've known, you know, a lot of the book talks about being very young and having to sort of deal with pri very privately what I understood very young as being, I mean, now I think, you know, now it's called gender queer, where I was very... I was a tomboy. I was a really, really butch little kid, you know. And it's kind of fine until you reach puberty. Then it becomes highly problematic, you know. And and so that, but always kind of being aware of that. And then later also coming into the awareness, you know, like when I was in college that I was a lesbian. And those were absolutely unheard of things to be able to bring up in the context of my family. And we're talking about, you know, the, the early 70s. You know, this is like forbidden. And it's just impossible and so I had basically decided once I had come out to myself and was living, you know, a fairly lesbian life, and but but this kind of dual life, seeing my family and then having my life in Los Angeles as a as a queer woman, um, I basically decided to move north because I needed to be out. So I was going to go to the Bay Area, and I I needed to live an out life, and I had pretty much decided that was it. You know, I wasn't going to, I'd have to, you know, I, I I'd have to lived this double life and I was going to go. And my mom um, <clears throat> says to me, just upon the point where I'm supposed to come, it's a phone conversation, I'm supposed to go to the family barbecue, which I was planning to do, and then and then I said, well, I'll just show up. And she goes, well, you're leaving, you're, you're moving tomorrow, you know, can't you spend more time with the family? And she goes, I just feel like, finally she just says, I think you're leaving with a secret. And that was great. I mean, that was horrible and great. The the greatness of it is that she already knew in a very deeply intuitive place. She knew me well enough to know that if I left and I didn't tell if I didn't tell her that secret, that I was really planning a life apart from them. And to me it was the most horrible thing in the world, but I had no choice. And so um she had the courage to 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 be the one, I mean much more courageous than me to say what's going on 
So I do finally come out to her, and you know, I hope people will buy the books that can read the story. But, <laughs> but, the, but the point being is that when I come out to her, you know, the most important, it was very, very difficult, and she got really mean at one point. I'm trying every way to talk me out of it, you know. And then I said, you know, don't make me choose. You know, if you make me choose between this life and my family, I have to choose this life. And I'm saying this to you as, as um, I'm saying this to you as someone where family to me was everything. You know, it's like family, culturally, Mexicano for me, that's it. It is family, you know. And so to make that choice shows you how, how grave and important it was for me to, to find that side of liberation for myself as a queer person. And so I say, don't make me choose, Mom. You know, if you make me, I have to choose my life. And basically she says to me, there is nothing you could do in this world that you would not be my daughter. And, you know, all I can say is I was good. (laughs) You know, it's like it wasn't that it was easy, but that was the beginning. And I think it's so fundamental, you know, because um, it was her courage, you know, that, that, that really that's what was the most moving, that she was so courageous to ask me something that was so forbidden for her. In, in the, you know, she did certainly didn't take it well in the beginning, but by the end of that conversation, she said exactly what I needed to hear because I did not expect her to understand. You know, I just expect hoped she would love me, and that's all she did. And I think that when you have that base, you know, like we're talking about, you know, many many years, you know, of my own writing and activism, and like sometimes people say, you know, why, you know, how is it you do this? And it's not about me, you know, it's about us. And I and I do feel like that moment of courage and that confidence that you're loved i feel enormously um, blessed for that because i feel like that was the bed you know the bedrock in which i could make a lot take other risks in my life because that was the biggest risk to take and it was good you know how did she grapple with the fact that she didn't have a formal education was that something that that she struggled with her whole life oh absolutely yeah my mother you know was very smart obviously i mean she was just really really she 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 was a quick study about everything i mean i feel like there's a way in which she walked into a room and she could figure out what was who to trust who not to trust i mean she really she did a there's just a she walked around with so so very profound values and and prejudices too i'm not saying that they weren't prejudiced but but because of that i think about how she'd see people with education and what she would see is that they had they had nice jobs you know they didn't have to work factory i mean they were my mother had horribly um arthritic um uh, fingers and she had worked for many many years in the um Voight rubber plant where you had to dip your hands into this, you know, I don't know, some kind of freezing, freezing liquid that like brought, I mean, I have arthritis now too, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm over 60. I mean, she had it, you know, in her thirties, like this crippling arthritis. And so she always kind of looked at, you know, from her perspective, if you could, even a high school education, you know, for us to have college was like, we were the first in our generation to, to have college education, my sister and brother and I, and some of my close first cousins. But for her, just to have a diploma meant that maybe you could be a secretary, you know? I mean, that was uh, that you could actually dress, you know, like having, you know, wear stockings. That you have a little, my mother was a very, you know, I think her time in Tijuana too, that, that, that she, you know, it was a conflict for her to see this big cosmopolitan world that somehow she fell into and then could never really live out in her own life because of a lack of education and also because of the racism in the United States. How did you explore your relationship with religion, with race, and with class? I mean, I know that's a huge question, but looking back on your life through this memoir that you've written, um, there's a relationship that your family had with the, with the church um, and with your own indigenous background. And of course, as we've just talked about, your your mother uh, came from a working class background that didn't have that formal education and you became the first of your generation to go to college. So there's so many of these issues intertwined, not to even bring into it the gender politics, but uh, but specifically focusing on, on the church, on your indigenous heritage. Can you Can you share a little bit about that? Well, the, the Catholic Church, I mean, we, you know, most, a lot of my cousins, my closest cousins, we all grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, and, and so we, uh, many of us went to the San Gabriel Mission, 
and uh, it was at uh, mission grammar school and high school. So it's like 12 years of Catholic education. And um, I think, you know, early on, you know, like by the time I was at 18, I, I said to my mother, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to the Catholic church because it, it, to me, it became very, very evident. And, and how you, I think you know that, one knows that, especially in the era in which I went to high school. So I was in high school from 1966 to 1970. So in that era, I mean, the, the world, I mean, it's like, my God, you know, it was the civil rights movement, all of the people of color movements that were following it, and then, you know, the school walkouts, you know, in LA. And it's, um, the, you know, it was like, to me, it was like my mind was being blown you know about all of this political unrest but also political response you know like activism that seemed to require so much courage and and so what it did for me because we lived in a very like our family our extended family there was a certain way in which it sort of housed us and almost could buffer you from the outside world you know and and so to me the kinds of so that when the issues of oppression began to surface it's like I was thinking, well, what is it, you know, what is the biggest oppression I feel? I feel like, I, I, you know, the, the, every rule that the Catholic Church, you know, uh, you know, uh, subscribed to basically had to do with women. I mean, every negative thing had to do with women. So abortion, you know, uh, women couldn't be priests, um, reproduction, I mean, everything, every single aspect of it. You know, and I, and I was taught by nuns, and there were there was a rectory right nearby too, so there was priests that taught. So, I had a very very close position of observation of those priests in particular and the contradictions. You know that they some of them were were Mexican, but most of them were white. The nuns were mostly white. I saw their prejudice against Mexicans. I saw there was just so many contradictions. So early on, um, and 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 I also had the example of my mother and the kind of so-called Catholic she was, because really she was, you know, I always felt like that her relationship to faith, um, her her belief in God had very little to do with the Catholic Church. I mean, you would go to her altar and, and her where she put down her prayers at her home altar was stronger and more faith-based and had more spirit life than any church I ever went to in all my life. And I could not, uh, I think that was probably the resounding contradiction, you know. And I see, I understood later that also that that altar is actually also a, is a mestizo site, you know, that it isn't just simply Spanish Catholicism. It is not Spanish Catholicism, you know, that it is in fact, like Puerto Ricanos can look at, you know, they look at Santa Barbara and that's really Chango. It's like you're seeing, you you your consciousness as it grows, you begin to understand that that really and truly this this altar is as old as native people in America. You know, that there that this way of faith, this way of experiencing spirit, the relationship it has, like when my mother would be in the garden and that was her best spot when she was working in the garden, her in the relationship to land, that these are in fact, you know, ways of being that have been around from the beginning of time. And it's not like we were, as Mexicans in the United States, um, certainly, and this is really beginning to change quite beautifully in the, in, the, in the last 20 years, but that we were raised, you know, to not, to, to think of Indians as other, or it is dead. So in the mission, I went to San Gabriel Mission School, and they talked about the priests that are buried underneath the church, and I'm thinking, I could feel it that it was, these are, you know, we were two blocks from the mission, our home probably, where we lived, probably, you know, native native burials, you know, that there was a sense. So partly the book also deals with that return of looking at what was the original name, Simbagna, what is the original name of where I grew up, you know, what was the original, um, you know, there's just trying to find language, an original language for a place, and that I feel, I guess also politically, I have to say, that I feel like that if we are ever going to be connected um, in any holistic way, which meaning both spiritually and materially, you know, to ourselves, and the only way we can combat this kind of monoculturalism and globalization that's happening, that on a certain level we have to know the ground on which we stand on. And you don't know that unless you recognize your own relationship to the history of colonization. And for Mexicans and for Centro Americanos the same way, 
people that are coming up now, they're indigenous people. And not that they'll tell you that necessarily, but they are indigenous people. And they are once again being removed from their lands. I mean, I call it our, you know, our new trail of tears, you know? So there's a, it's constant level of connection. So that when I had, when I was writing this book, I forced myself to go back to that mission. I did not want to go back to it. I hated that place. I just wanted to leave, you know? And it's also about, you know, that Spanish, um, uh, colonization, Spanish Catholicism, you know, the sword and the cross were it, of course, right? So I feel like, you know, regardless of, you know, blood quantum, you know, it's like, I feel like that there is also, that the nature of Mexicanism, you know, is also indigenous, and that we have been, um, it has been strategic, you know, for 500 years, you know, to, to de-Indianize our memory and our consciousness, and partly my work as a as a teacher, you know, and now being at Santa Barbara, I'm just so grateful. We we have a my partner and I, Celia Dero Rodriguez, have started this center called Las Maestras Center for Chicana Indigenous Thought, Art Practice, and Social Practice. And what all we're trying to do is teach a different way, like trying to teach these kids they can go home. And these are mostly Latino kids, and 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 I, you see that that's. You know, it's like what they always say is like when you realize that your second-class citizenship is not a is not natural. That's the birth of consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I talk about the mission, it's just like, oh my God! It's like, you know, I I had to return and look at it. You know, from my vantage point. Well, you know, many fifty years later. Wow. You know, one never stops. You know. So finally, I'm wondering if you can end with your views on how. Uh, one's identity can be an act of resistance in today's America, especially those of us with multiple intersecting, overlapping identities that don't fit into any neat boxes. Um, and, and, you know, asserting that identity can feel like a, an important act of resistance today, which I feel like your memoir in many ways lives up to that. Well, yes, I mean, of course, I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, how many years ago now that, you know, when feminism, you know, I talked about the personal is political. Well, the political is very personal, too, right? And so that I, I think we've gone through a period of time in which there's been such this reductive thing that happened in academia about identity poly, politics, that somehow identity politics was very reduced to something very literal and very essentialist in this way that that I never understood it as that. I always understood it as I had mentioned before, the you know, that what the Kambahi River Collective had written about that all these sites of our identities are connected, you know. And it is and and nothing nothing has to be put aside. And my but but for me, what I feel like, yes, it's so complex because even when you look at immigration and so you know who are the who are the good immigrants and who are not the good immigrants you know and how that's related to class in particular right so the whole issue of professional class immigration is looked well upon but poor we don't need any more poor people is the idea right from the um you know as a nation state you know position so all of the complexities you know of of that all i all, all i can ever say is that i do believe that if daily you walk through your life and you ask yourself one question in every given situation you're in, you ask, um, who has the power at this moment? Who has the power? And sometimes it's you. And power is not in itself necessarily negative, but even as a teacher, you know, or like, you know, you're a professor, right? And you walk into a classroom and you know you have power. And then you look in the room and you see, well, who, who isn't a player in this? Who's speaking up first? Who's, who's not a player? a player at the table, you know? And I feel like it has really held true for me that, and I think because, you know, many of us, you know, you included, that that we occupy multiple sites of oppression, but also multiple sites of strategies for liberation, you know? And so our cultural component, the values we learned and how we learned them, even when our parents are telling us the opposite, even when what's coming out of their mouth is the opposite, but you see, for example, how what the relationship. And this is what I see this very much with, you know, um, is you know a lot of people of color, um, uh, immigrant populations, 
how, what's the relationship to their elders, right? What is the languages that are used? And how does that language express something that can't be expressed in English? So how do we then, and, and you know, you're a great example of this, like how do we then as public thinkers, you know, then try to find a language that brings our own people home, even if they don't know their original tongue? So to me, identity is, is you can't skip identity. And I think partly what's sometimes pro a problematic is that, you know, young people come into the college, and I see this a lot with, with young white students, is they don't think they have to go home. But they do too. Because without that basis, without understanding what went wrong or right there, you know, they cannot be sure-footed in this world. You know, so now we see, I mean, we're talking about the Congress. I mean, it is very dangerous to speak up. You see what's happening to the women of color who are speaking up in Congress. And it's, it's a beautiful moment. And I'm scared all the time for them. <laughs> all the time because I identify with them and I identify with the courage it takes just to you can feel sometimes I'm shaking inside you know and there and just to open your mouth you know it's uh it's and and I guess one thing I want to say too is that one person's act of what seems like one person's act of bravery you know is not the same for another person I see this with these young you know uh Latino Latinx students that are coming up and I, I see them and Sometimes some of those young women just to have an opinion is a strong act of courage. And for somebody else who has much more class privilege, it's, no, it's easy. The mouth does it easily, right? So I think that's, again, about always kind of going through the world, looking at questions of power and, and, and how you use yours, you know, how are you using yours well to also um, to inspire power um, in other people. You know, and I think there is like, um, like saying to you before we started, this is an even playing field, you and me. You know, and I, and I I'm honored to say that because I have a very a lot of respect for the work you're doing. Oh, thank and you. it has to be like that. I mean, it has to be that way with everybody. You look at your students and you say, no, 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 let's let's. I know. Okay, I'm here to teach you, but how can we how can we make this a little more even? What do you have to offer me to? And they teach you everything, students. I mean, you know, young people are you know, scarily smart, you know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, uh, Cherie, it's been such a deep honor to have you on the program today. I could talk to you forever. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was really good to talk to you. My guest has been Cherie Moraga, Chicana feminist, playwright, poet, essayist, activist, co-editor of the 1981 groundbreaking collection of essays, This Bridge Called My Back, writings by radical women of color. She now teaches at University of California, Santa Barbara, and we've been talking about her latest book, Native Country of the Heart, a memoir. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. My guest is Cherie Moraga, Chicana feminist, playwright, poet, essayist, activist, and co-editor of the 1981 groundbreaking collection of essays, This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. Uh, she's done many, many things, including being an artist in residence at Stanford University for decades. Now she teaches at UC Santa Barbara. And we're talking about her latest book, Native Country of the Heart, a memoir. We're going to keep Cherie on for a, an extended conversation, which you can find in the premium content section of our website, risingupwithsonali.com. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Our news reports are filled with stories of people who engage in racist behavior. 
but are then horrified at the idea of being called racist. Most of us are socialized to harbor racist ideas subconsciously, and those biases present themselves whether we realize it or not. Now, a new book written by an award-winning psychologist attempts to offer an evidence-based approach to fighting our own racial bias. Dolly Chug is a Harvard-educated award-winning social psychologist at the New York University Stern School of Business, where she's an expert in the unconscious biases and unethical behavior of ordinary people. She joins me to discuss her new book. It's called The Person You Mean to Be. How good people fight bias. Welcome to the program, Dali. Oh, Sonali, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, we hear it so often um, that people, you know, will proclaim with absolute certainty, I am not a racist. Sometimes they'll go as far as saying, my, some of my best friends are black people or brown people, etc. Um, and um, we tend to judge people by their actions, not by how they view themselves. How racist are most of us, maybe all of us? Um, and is there a way to even measure that? Yes, yes. And, and I'm so glad you used the pronoun us, because it really is us, myself included. Um, and, and it's, it's, racism and a number of other biases uh, as well. How racist are we? Well, according to one measure of unconscious or implicit bias in the U.S., uh, 75% of test takers, and this was a sample of millions of test takers at uh, a website for the Implicit Association Test, or the IAT, 75% of test takers showed an implicit bias that favored whites over blacks. And that um, that 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 overwhelming majority um, actually doesn't flip if you only focus on black test takers. We even see amongst black test takers people who self-identify as black. We don't see overwhelming majority, but we see a pretty even split between people who show an implicit bias favoring blacks and whites. So racial bias... So, at so the you're saying that, level, that even, say, black folks uh, will implicitly value white folks over black folks? Some, some, some will, and it's it's not it, that knowing that helps us unpack this idea of unconscious racial bias because one instinct a lot of us have is doesn't it make sense that we would favor our own group? That just seems like the kind of thing evolution would 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 support. Um, but if if that were true, then you would see every group showing that unconscious reflex. Um, it's, it's not what we see in the data. Um, and this is a test that if anyone wants to see their own results, it's available to anybody for free anonymously at a research website, um, implicit.harvard.edu. Right. Um, this is definitely, uh, we've heard of that implicit bias test. So um, how do we uh, explain that? Uh, because understanding why these are so uh, widespread, such unconscious biases are so widespread, I imagine is the first step to addressing how one um, identifies them and then and then overcomes them. So why are we That's so right. socialized to be racist? <laughs> That's right. So part of this is about how, and understanding how the human mind works, just the basic structure of thought. Um, what we know as psychologists, this has been a huge advance in the last 50 years, is how much of the mind's work is happening outside of our awareness, that there's actually a shocking amount that our mind is doing all the time. Um, imagine in any given moment, like right now, like in that quick little second, um, one estimate is that there's 11 million pieces of information coming into our mind in that brief moment, but only 40 of them are being processed consciously. So that means 11 million minus 40. That's a whole lot of work that's happening basically on autopilot in, in low power mode in our brains. And what that means is that the brain is relying a lot of, on a lot of shortcuts to do its work. Like how else could it handle 11 million pieces of information every moment? Um, there's shortcuts. And one of those shortcuts is that the mind clusters things together. It makes associations. And for example, if I say peanut butter, you might say, jelly in response and that's a really common association that if you were raised in the US it, it's it's an association that you probably don't remember how it came to be in your mind 
But now we can tell how tightly associated peanut butter and jelly are in your mind because you're really quick in associating them. Like if I say it, peanut butter, and then jelly comes right behind it, that quickness of association reveals that there's this shortcut um, in how the brain is storing information. So those shortcuts that serve us very well, that allow us to do a whole bunch of things without thinking too hard about it, to, we can read and we can drive and we can have a conversation while we're cooking. We can do a lot of things at once, but it also means that sometimes we're doing things we don't realize we're doing. Those shortcuts are causing problems. Mm -hmm. And that comes from all the stuff in our environment around us. Um, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum calls it the smog, which, which is a, a tough reference to make um, given the air quality situation yeah. in California. But, but it, it's actually sort of visceral when you think about it that sometimes we're breathing in smog and we can feel it and we can see it. And other times it's invisible, but it's still there coming in. And the smog in this case is all the little associations since the moment we were born that associated uh, women as being in certain roles or black people as having certain associations. And it could be from our parents, it could be from our media, media our school, our books, our things we just see in the world around us. Those associations have formed that smog that has become our associations or our unconscious biases. So when, say, a white person says um, about people of color, I don't see color, uh, it's all, you, you know, people are all the same to me, I don't see color, that's not true, right? I mean, even right. if they're not acknowledging right. it consciously, their brain is seeing a person of color. Right. So there's a couple of ways to tackle that one. I mean, one, my favorite is uh, uh, someone once said to me, a, an African-American person said to me, you know, I've noticed that when people say I don't see color, they only say it to black people, <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> is sort of meta. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but breaking that down a little bit, um, yes. So we know um, work that's been done uh, by psychologists shows that we perceive three things fairly quickly um, when we meet someone. Um, we perceive their age, their gender, and their race sort of at some level uh, instantaneously. And that, that information, I think what people mean when they say I don't see color is they want to say I don't use that information in inappropriate ways. That, that's the intention behind that statement. Um, but the impact of that statement is actually quite the opposite. Um, studies by um, Mike Norton and his colleagues have shown that uh, when, when a white person does not describe a black person using their race when it would be a relevant piece of information in a conversation, they're actually trusted less, not more. That mm -hmm. color blindness is actually held against them. Um, and I think... Uh, another in, in my book, I interviewed someone in, on this topic, and she said, "You know, it's uh, it, it's as if you're saying there's something wrong with seeing that I'm black. That there's there's a um, there's something to be ashamed of or not seen in my blackness. Um, and you could you could fill in uh, brownness or other other racial or ethnic identities as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, colorblindness is one of those narratives in the United States that a lot of really well-meaning people have adopted, not realizing that it's actually having the opposite impact. Now, the socialization that we are immersed in in the United States, um, a lot of it has to do with pop culture, the media that we consume. And in recent years, Hollywood has come under fire for um, being um, too white. You know, just a, it's essentially an industry that unfortunately a lot of the decision making still is being done by disproportionately white men. You see that in the awards that are, uh, award nominations and the awards that are given out, although that appears to be you know, changing bit by bit, and, and people of color in the industry were told over and over again, and audiences were told um, that um, it's all purely about economics. That that it's only you know that 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 mostly white ma uh, white leads in films are the ones that make money, and that's that's all that that Hollywood was following. But we know now through evidence, through films like you know Black Panther and others that the opposite is true. Um, how much responsibility does our media, our culture, our films play in socializing us to basically be subconsciously white supremacist? 
Yeah. Um, the media is playing a really powerful role. Storytelling plays a powerful role, storytelling of all forms. Um, and, and when we say media, we mean the, the whole wide spectrum of media, even including news, even before the era of fake news, just the idea of local news. There's been media scholars who have shown how um, in local news, the um, black men as perpetrators are overrepresented um, in the what's actually shown on television versus what actual uh, Department of Justice reports say the crime rates are um, in those areas. And that there's the, the language being used, the visuals being used are also particularly fear-based. So everything from our news to our movies, Stacey Smith and her team have done um, really in-depth analysis of our films and TVs and the top 100 movies. And the statistics are startling, something like 50 out of 100 of the top 100 movies had zero black, black characters with speaking parts, something like that in, in that ballpark. Um, and some similarly startling statistics about other people of color and about women. Um, so, so the media is, is absolutely pattern matching against history, which history is not the right thing to be pattern matching against right now. There's obviously huge opportunity as Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians and Wonder Woman are evidence of. Um, I'll also add that those of us who don't work in the media industry, um, I don't work in the media industry, but um, we can do a little bit of our part too here and really, and I talk about this in my book of playing a really um, active role in knowing which, uh, whatever media we're most interested in, movies, podcasts, books, music, um, being attuned to which ones are coming out and when, because the early financial results, if it's a movie, for example, opening weekend, if it's a book, pre-orders, are really critical in sending signals to the financial decision makers that this is a viable mm -hmm. project. Um, and so we can really try to do uh, our part in in engaging with that work as early as possible. Let's talk about um, the ways in which those people who might be convinced um, through taking a test that indeed they are more racist than they realized want to actually do something about it. What would they do? Doesn't um, doesn't addressing implicit bias involve deep self-examination and indeed examination about the privileges that we have that we sometimes don't think about because we all want to think of ourselves as having deserved everything that we've worked to get. Absolutely. And that's that's certainly a, a, a human instinct that I share as well. Um, there's a few things here. We, we, we don't, as scientists, have the magic solution on how to de-bias ourselves. I mean, that, that's unfortunately just we've you know, many psychologists are trying and we have yet to, to crack the nut on that. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't work to be done. Certainly, um, one of the things I really emphasize in my book is the importance of a growth mindset. And that's, that's work that Carol Dweck and other psychologists have done that shows that when you think of yourself as a work in progress, you're more likely to learn from your mistakes. When you think of yourself as sort of already having figured something out, and in this country, we often do think about ourselves on diversity and inclusion as this is something we should know how to do. We are not works in progress. Um, we're a bad person if we show any racism or sexism. Um, but the, this, the unconscious bias research says that that's an unrealistic expectation. We have to know that we are going to make mistakes and when we make them have that growth mindset, that belief that we can get better. So my argument has been that um, our by clinging to this good person identity where there's no room for mistakes and no room for growth, we're actually getting in the way of being better people, that we want to try to be goodish people, I'm calling it. And <laughs> to be very clear, crystal clear on this, goodish, being a goodish person is not a lower standard. It's a higher standard than being a good person. Because when you're a good person and you screw up and you step in it, and God knows I do this a lot, I'm a professor and I'll you know, mix up two students of the same race who look nothing alike for each other or in front of the entire class. I mean, really kind of humiliating stuff. Well, thank you for admitting um, that. That's that's hard to yeah. admit, right? And we've all done so it, many. unfortunately. I got so many, Sonali. <laughs> yeah, I know. We've we all done it. I've done it. I'll admit it. <laughs> that's right. And so in those moments, the question is, what do we do next? What yeah. can we do to grow from that? Or are we just going to kind of go into the red zone of defensiveness and like pretend it never happened? 
um, as a goodish person, it's a higher standard because you got to own the mistake and grow from it. And um, so awareness of implicit biases has to come in a growth mindset because in a fixed mindset, we're still not going to make the improvements we want to make. I'll add one more thing to this, to your point about um, you're alluding to, I think, systemic bias. Even if we could, if we had that magic solution to make unconscious biases go away, and I could take even conscious biases and wipe that out as well, um, we would still have systemic bias baked into a lot of our processes and structures in society. So we'd still have plenty of work to do. So um, it's 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 it requires us to think about everything from what's the smog we're taking in to what are the systems and processes that we use to hire people, to promote people, to welcome people into our neighborhoods, to have parent-teacher engagement at schools. Like these are all places in which systemic bias can show up. Yeah, and I should really say, you know, as a, as a brown person, um, those of us who are neither black nor white, or, you know, tend to fall into this category where sometimes there's a battle between what well, can we also be a racist and absolutely, especially anti-black racism is pervasive among Asian communities, whether we want to admit it or not, it, it is. Um, around Latino communities, it's there. There is anti-black racism. There is racism against, you know, other groups. Sometimes there's racism against a different community from the country of, or of your own origin. And I've seen that in my uh, my family, my community as well. So these are certainly complicated um, questions. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, so whether uh, the book that you've written, I'm sure it has been years in the making, but we live in a time today where unfortunately, it's becoming okay to be overtly racist now. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, that we are at this bizarre and really disturbing political moment where um, implicit bias, implicit racism, um, the subtle racist um, aggressions that take place are, are not as um, shocking as the fact that there are people that are just overtly racist. We have neo-Nazi groups and, and white supremacist groups openly talking about the superiority of the white race and politicians pandering to them. I mean, that's a scary moment. It really is. And But, but here's what's so stunning about it, and it, it actually is really critical to understanding this whole good person identity that we all cling to um, meaning even those of us uh, who aren't in that group you just described. Um, if you read the writings of white nationalists and white supremacists and neo-Nazis, they see themselves as good people. Yeah. They really do. They truly believe it. And there's a fascinating book that just came out. Um, I probably shouldn't be plugging other books, but this is a really good book that I recommend called Rising Out of Hatred by Pulitzer Prize winner Eli Saslow, and it chronicles um, the conversion of Derek Black, who was the rising star of the white nationalists. He was David Duke's, he is David Duke's godson, and he was gonna be the uh, leader of this new generation. Um, and he's, he's abandoned it and become an anti-racist himself. And when you read this book, you really get a peek into how he was um, raised, how he was schooled, and what he was led to believe, and it's very much entrenched in we are doing the right thing, this is moral, this is good. So I say that to say we are really addicted to seeing ourselves as good people, no matter who we are or what we believe. We see ourselves that way. Um, there's the research on moral identity, as it's called, confirms that. What that means is that for all of us, white nationalists and the rest of us, that growth mindset, that goodish perspective is going to be critical. It's the only way we can move forward because whether it's with our unconscious biases or our conscious biases, it's the only way we can move forward because we have to see ourselves as good people. We were very addicted to that identity. Hmm. Um, thankfully. <laughs> uh, well, I want to thank you so much, uh, Dolly, for joining us. Are there some online tools um, that, that you can suggest for people? I mean, of course, uh, certainly encourage them to get a copy of your book, uh, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Uh, but uh, the, the Harvard Implicit Bias Test, I'm sure you said it was available yeah. online. Any other things you can suggest? Yeah, I've, there's some videos on my website, which is dollychug.com. I think they're under media. Um, some New York Times videos that are about two minutes long. 
they've done a really wonderful job making these ideas come to life. So it, I think there's a series of seven, so it's a total of about 14 minutes in two-minute chunks. I, I really recommend those as well. Great. We'll post a link to your website, dollychug.com. Chug is spelled C-H-U-G-H and uh, .com. Thank you so much, and good luck to you with the book. Oh, Sonali, thank you so much for having me and for the work you do. My guest has been Dolly Chug. She's a Harvard-educated, award-winning social psychologist at the New York University Stern School of Business, where she's an expert in the unconscious biases and unethical behavior of ordinary people. We've been discussing her new book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, subscribe to our audio podcast on iTunes, and our video channel on Vimeo. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kolhatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. Help me now, baby. You gotta help me. Cause I need somebody. I need you right now. Come on in. Let me know that you need me, dude. I'm gonna take a look now.